Well, let's get rolling, because we've got a lot to go through. Imagine that. We've been in this Emmaus Road series here for several weeks, and we've got several weeks to go. But as you can tell, there's a lot to the Old Testament that maybe we haven't seen before. Would you at least give me that much? I mean, there's so much in there. A lot of times we just read it as historical, which is good. And we also sometimes read it for the moral side of it. There's moral stories built into it. That's also good, but it goes a lot deeper than that because the thing that we need to remember about our Bible is the whole of it is about Jesus, all of it, every page. It's all about the redemption of mankind. It's all about going from Genesis 1, from the creation account, everything created in perfection, to Genesis 3, where the fall of man happens. And then from the rest of it is all about getting the Messiah here, what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, all of that different kind of stuff. And what's amazing is as you track this out, it begins to open your eyes to the Bible and you understand it in a way perhaps that you didn't understand before. Part of our problem is, is because we have a Western mindset, we have a cultural difference between what was of the Bible times and then what, was, what goes on now, but we also have a lot of filters that we filter the Scriptures through. We filter it through our experience. Our experience says something, therefore when we read the Bible, we read it through that filter of experience, or perhaps a denominational background of some sort. We read the Bible through that filter, saying that, well, I know it says this, but it can't mean that because I believe this. And that's the problem with the Bible. I had a friend of mine who, in their youth group this last week, um, they had them text in Bible questions, questions about the Bible. It's a great idea. And they said, would you mind helping us answer these. I said, sure. So I think there was 12 questions. I said, not a problem. I sent them back 34 pages typed up. And I was sitting there like, and I told them, I was like, don't read all of this to them, please, okay? But, but there's just so much information. Their questions were great. Why is God invisible? It's a good question. You ever thought about it? Most people haven't. Or does God, we say God doesn't change, but doesn't he have to change a little bit? Because look at how different the world is today than it was, say, 2,000 years ago. You know, things like that, that we have an understanding, but we never really think it through of why doesn't God change? And how doesn't God change? And just, just stuff like that. And so when we began this journey, it's all about discovering Jesus in the Old Testament ultimately is what we're doing. And last week we started talking about covenants because we do not comprehend how important covenants are to God. As a matter of fact, what we don't realize is that when somebody is born again, they are now in covenant with God. When somebody gets married, they are in covenant with their spouse and with God. That is why weddings were always performed in the church by clergy. Now that's changed culturally here. But that's not how God intended. Why? A husband will leave his, his family and cleave with his wife and they will become one flesh. What is that one flesh? It's the same idea of Jesus and the church. We are one in him. And so there's so much to this in this covenant concept. And last week, we, we dove into this. So a covenant in and of itself is nothing more than a contract or an agreement between two or more parties when you look at it and you break it down. Now, we don't use covenant language because we use contractual language. Every time that you go and do something, purchase a home, you sign a contract. And it lays out both parties and what they will do, what they won't do, and how they're going to come together, whether it be purchasing a house, any of that kind of stuff. It's some sort of contract. And so God has dealt with mankind in covenants since the beginning, from the very beginning. And we started last week talking about the Adamic 
covenant. And of course, we talked about the covenant he made with Noah and the Abrahamic. Those were the three that we talked about. Now, in the Adamic was between God and Adam, but Adam is a representation of all mankind. Because if Adam hadn't fell, that contract, that covenant that he created, goes surpasses him. It goes way past just him. And the, basically, the stipulations were this. You're to have dominion on the earth, You're to be fruitful, you're to multiply, and basically do whatever God says. Heed the voice of God. It was pretty simple. Perfect world, nothing bad happened, no rain, they lived in perfection, it was was beautiful. They did not have uh, days where they wake up and it's minus one outside, right? They're running around naked, it would have been really cold or something, you know? I mean, they didn't have what we have. They wouldn't have missed church because of snow, because there was no snow. Snow is of the devil, that's what we just... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But basically, God says, do this, and you can do anything you want inside of this, these, these guidelines, but don't do one thing. Don't eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good evil. And they did it anyway. They heeded the voice of, of the enemy, the serpent, Satan, if you will. And so when we look at this, there were three questions that we were going to answer every time when we do this. Was, who was the covenant between? Or four, it could be either one. What are the conditions of the covenant? And then, of course, was there a sign to that covenant? And those are significant um, as we continue to go through these, especially getting into the new covenant, which we're going to talk about next week. So, who was the covenant with Adam? It was between God and man, or God and Adam, right? Pretty simple. Were, were the conditions of it? Do everything else I said you do, but just don't do the one thing I told you not to. One single solitary thing, don't screw that up. Don't you wish your kids were that simple, right? I mean, just like, you do anything you want, just don't do that. Anyway, makes me think of that old meatloaf song, I would do anything for love, but not, sorry. Squirrel, I'm off. All right, was there a sign to this covenant? No, there was not. Why was there not a sign? One really wasn't needed because it was just God and Adam. There was two people. What do you need a sign for? Just don't do what I told you not to do. Pretty simple. Then we get into the covenant with Noah. They call it the Noahic covenant. Again, all these theologians come up with big fancy words to confuse us. But this is the covenant that was made between Noah and God after the flood. But it was bigger than that because it was actually not just to Noah. It was for all mankind. It was a promise that was made and simply stated it was this. God said that I will never again destroy the earth with water. doesn't say he won't bring judgment again, but he'll never judge the earth with water again. And so this covenant was between God and man, the earth basically, and all living creatures. That was the God's promises. It was based completely on him. It was, there were no conditions to it. God said, I'm going to do this, so therefore this is it. But there was a sign. It was a rainbow. Now that rainbow is there. Why was the sign there? It was intended to remind us and remind God. You say, well, why does God need a reminder? He doesn't forget anything. It was a symbol placed before both of us that when we all look at it, we know that God is not going to do something that he said he wasn't going to do. That's what it was. It was just this sign. And so we should look at that and say, man, every time we see a rainbow, you should think about this is a promise that was given by God. It should excite you a little bit. Go back to when you were six and you're driving down the road and you see a rainbow like, oh, rainbow. Get a little bit like that or not. And then we talked about the Abrahamic covenant, and this was a big one. This is where God calls Abraham out of the area that he was. He was happy. He was doing well. Things were going well for him. And then he says, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. So he didn't say, hey, take 37 miles that direction and go park it. No, he said, you just get moving. I'll tell you where to go. And so he promises him a few things, that he will make his name great and that he will bless him. And then through him, all the rest of the world will be blessed. 
He's going to make him into a great nation, and he's going to give him this land as an everlasting possession. This land would be Israel, the area of Israel a little bit further than what maybe they have today. But basically, the bottom line is this, is that through Abraham, all of us are brought into covenant with God, eventually. And so, the covenant here was between God and Abraham for all of mankind. It was specifically between those two. What were the conditions of it? There were no conditions because it was simply cut by God on behalf of Abraham and mankind. God put Abraham to sleep, if you remember this from last week. And then the smoking oven, the burning torch goes through the pieces, and we talked about all the the specifics in that. And so what was the sign of it? It was circumcision. Seems like an odd sign to us, but this was significant. They were separating themselves from the rest of the world, and, and circumcision was practiced by some pagan nations. But ultimately, it was that when the seed of the man would go with the seed of the woman, it would pass through that covenant promise by God. And that was the significance of it, that all these children would be born underneath the covenant. This covenant could not be broken, although you could possibly not enter into it by not obeying what God had said. So once you were in, you couldn't get out per se, but you didn't have to be into it. But it was unbreakable because it was based off of God's promises. That's a recap from last week. That was a lot of information I gave you all last week. As I said, this week it will be up. I think we've got our issue fixed. But today we're going to talk about the Mosaic Covenant. We're going to talk about two more. We're going to talk about six total. But the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant, when we've already addressed a little bit of that. The Mosaic Covenant is significant. When the Bible talks about in the New Testament, the Old Covenant, it is referring to the Mosaic Covenant. Some will call it the Sinaitic Covenant because it was on Mount Sinai where it was given. But it's, it's between Moses, God, and basically the Israelites. And so this is where God gives His divine law to Moses on Mount Sinai. In addition to instituting these laws, he also goes through and he reaffirms many of the promises that he gave in the Abrahamic covenant. And you will see this continually as he adds to this. He always goes back and reaffirms that Abrahamic promise. It's interesting. So there's a few things that he promised. God promises to bless Israel. And I think I've got this up. Yeah, and you can write down those verses. That's where it talks about that. God promises to bless Israel. He promises that he will multiply the nation. And he also gives Israel the land, the land that was promised to Abraham. You'll see it come to fruition after the Mosaic Covenant is cut. So I'm going to, give you, I'm going to read these again just to give you a chance to write down all the references. He promises to bless Israel. He multi- promises to multiply the nation. He promises to give Israel the land. And you see these things take place. The next part of it is he will make them a great nation. A nation that other nations will be envious of. He also promised that he will be Israel's God and they would be his people. Now that's significant, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But he'll be Israel's God and they will be his people. And then the last thing he does is confirm the covenant with the Israelites of that generation. The covenant of Abraham, of course, the covenant that he's cutting right now, is confirmed by God. And so we're going to look at this process of how this went. Now, I, I, I want to say this, and I'm saying this with all of them. We are giving you an overview of what is going on. Because if we were to go into this super in-depth, we would be here for months talking about this because there is a lot of information. This whole Mosaic Covenant aspect covers multiple books, chapters in the, in the Old Testament. It's huge. So don't just stop here. I'd encourage you to go and study this stuff out. But flip over to Exodus 19 is where we're going to start. We're going to look at this process 
of how this covenant came to be and why it came to be. Exodus 19, starting in verse 1, it says, In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. Now, so this is telling us right after the Exodus, it's three months later, very short time span. For they had departed from Rephidim, Rephidim, I'm sorry, had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God and said, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. It's significant when Moses went up to God. Keep thinking about some of the other stuff we talked about, the interpersonal relationship and the appearances of God. Okay, this is implying that same thing. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So, again, you see this three months after they go through the Exodus. God tells them that if they will obey his voice and keep his covenant, that he will be, they will be a special treasure to him above all other people. Now when he says you will keep my covenant, that implies that you could not keep my covenant, right? Okay, so he tells them that they're going to be a kingdom of priests, that he's going to set them aside as a holy nation. That's significant. He says that all the earth is his. Again, significant. Because a lot of times we don't look at it that way, but he says all the earth is his, and you'll see this in a little while, this is very significant. And Moses goes and tells the people, and they agree to do what, they, what God says. He says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So in other words, they are saying, yes, we agree to the conditions of the covenant that you are making. We agree to it. Because they could have said no. They didn't have to. They didn't, weren't forced into it. They weren't coerced into it at all. They said that we want to be all the things that you just said. So let's flip over to Exodus 20. And we're going to read a bunch here. And you're going to recognize these. should be very clear if you ever sat through a Sunday school. Exodus 20, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Are you guys picking up what these are? These are the Ten Commandments, right? All right. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and mother. I bet you some parents said that a time or two. 
that your days may be long upon, upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Okay. What did we just read? We read the Ten Commandments, right? The in-depth one. It used to be you could walk into a courthouse and you'd see these everywhere. That's becoming less and less true as time passes. But between this point of God reading the layout of His covenant, because remember, just before this, they'd agreed to do whatever the Lord had said. We will do this. He lays this out. Over the next three chapters, it goes into a lot of different aspects of the law. So there are three parts of the law that we're going to talk about. There's the moral law the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. Those are all encompassed between the 613 laws that God gave to the nation of Israel. Okay, It's not just 10. The 10 encompass a lot of it. But a lot of it had to do with how they act upon each other. So talking about the moral law, that in and of itself is the Ten Commandments. This is how they govern the Israelites' lives and what they do and in their relationship with God. Okay, It's how they govern because you've got to remember, they're in a theocracy. God rules supreme, speaks through prophets, commands the nation. Later on, they demand a king like the rest of the nation. But as of right now, they're under direct command of God. This consists of all of the, uh, many of the specific laws that were set out in, in Exodus 21 through 24, but also you'll see it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The ceremonial law which you'll find in Exodus 25 through 40, and again, parts of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. These are rules that contain the tabernacle and the ceremonies and the priests and the clothing uh, that they wear, the different functions that the people would have, and the sacrifices and offerings. It was all ceremonial to God. It was all in worship. These were given to, the, to teach the people how they had to sanctify themselves in order to approach God, and they could not even do that without a mediator or a priest. Okay, So you see all these different parts, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial law. It's all laid out. They all have a specific purpose. There's 613 laws, and some of them get a little wacky. If you've ever read them, and it's, boy, is it interesting reading. You should definitely go back and do it. It's, it gets a little odd because culturally we don't relate to a lot of these things. But these are detailed rules that they were given to govern their civil and social life. And, of course, um, their functions on how they worship God and how they approach God. You should see how much better we have it, right? We don't do any of this stuff. Thank God for that. Flip over to Exodus 24. Exodus 24, starting in verse 1. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. Again, what are they doing? We agree. They're confirming it. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood and sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled 
sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. As this story progresses, you will begin to see a lot of things take place past this point. We just saw that Moses wrote down everything that God had said to him, and they call it the book of the covenant. And again, we don't understand the sacrificial system because we've never lived in it, but it was a blood covenant between God and Israel. He sprinkled the blood on the book and on the people as a sacrifice to God. Seems bizarre to us because we don't live in that, but this was normal practice in a blood covenant situation. The people agreed to do everything that the Lord had just said. So past this point, there's a lot of things we're going to skip over. The building of the tabernacle uh, happens, and it's very specific, and we'll talk about this more at another time. But the sacrifices begin. You see the line of Aaron becomes the priestly line. So everybody that is a priest that does the sacrifices and worship and intermediates between man and God, in this case, case are coming from the line of Aaron and then you also see this whole sacrificial system that's set up that atones for the sins now atone means to cover the sins okay it's different the blood and bulls and goats can never remove sin it can simply cover them which is why Jesus sacrificed was so much more there's a lot of stuff in here you also see that immediately after uh, they set all of this up. This is in chapter 32 that the first thing that the Israelites do is they break the covenant by building a golden calf, right? Immediately. I mean, we're not talking years down the road. I don't know that we're talking days down the road. They already screwed up. Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the, the Ten Commandments on stone that God gives him. And they go and they say, you need to make for us, Aaron, a golden calf. And he obliges. Why does he oblige? Because I think he's afraid of the people. And you'll see that part where they remove their gold earrings. Okay? These were not decorative earrings. This is a sign of their, Israel, or their Egyptian slavery is what those were. But anyway, so Moses comes down, sees what's going on. He breaks the tablets because he's furious. God wants to smite them. Moses talks him out of it. Okay, moving right along. So you'll see in chapter 34 what new tablets are made, and God renews the covenant with them again because they've already screwed it up. So he says, okay, let's try this again. So as I said, this whole process is extremely in-depth, right? It's extremely, there's way more to it. I gave you a Reader's Digest version of this. But the bottom line is that we, when we look at this, we need to answer these three questions. Who was the covenant between? It was between God and Israel. The rest of the nations were not subject to these commandments. There are parts of the law that transcend simple um, national resources, national obedience. For example, thou shalt not murder is true everywhere you go. But specifically, this is between God and the nation of Israel. You, you may be asking why I'm hammering this home. Because there is a sect of believers today who believe that somehow the church has replaced Israel, and we've talked about this, and that we are now subject, if we want to truly worship God the way God wants to be worshipped, we pull ourselves back underneath of these commandments and we live that way. No, the sacrificial system's gone, we don't have to worry about that, but we have to watch our dietary laws and all that other stuff. It's, which is nonsense. W were there conditions to this thing? Absolutely, there were. Several of them. Do what I say. There's 613 laws. You could not break one. If you broke one, you broke them all. There were ways to atone for innocent breakage of the law, 
But ultimately, as you'll see, if you don't keep the Sabbath, the punishment is death. And we'll talk about the Sabbath here in a little bit more. But there were numerous times throughout the history of Israel, they break this covenant time and time again. Because why? No man could keep it. You can't be perfect before God. It's impossible. Was there a sign to this covenant? Nothing that jumps out to us what we just read, specifically, except in one verse. Exodus 20 and verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. That stranger, by the way, is not a stranger that we don't know. Remember, that comes from the uh, Hebrew word gim, I believe, or gib, gib. And it's talking about somebody who comes into the nation and converts to Israelite. They're becoming Israelite, okay? They were not born an Israelite. They become one, and they are told time and time again to treat them with respect. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the Sabbath. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. This is a big deal to God. Big deal. This is the first time you see the mention of the Sabbath. There are some that will speculate that everyone up to this point had kept the Sabbath. I would disagree with that statement because the Bible never says that. We're reading something into the text if we take that approach. It's possible that they did it, but if they were doing this prior to this time, God spends a lot of time explaining the what it is and why they're doing it and all of that. But this simply tells us what the Sabbath is. It doesn't tell us why it's there right? It tells us what it is, how you do it, what you should do, what you should not do, but it doesn't tell us the why. You've got to flip over to Exodus 31 to pick up the why. Exodus 31 and verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak also to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbath you shall keep for it is a sign between me and and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days. But the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. This is right before Moses comes down and he breaks the tablets, and you see in verse 18, and when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and then he goes down and breaks them. But who's it between? It says it's between God and Israel, and why is it there? It's a sign of that covenant. We saw with the Abrahamic covenant, you see it, is a, it was circumcision that was a sign. Now with the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, something that they have to willfully choose to do to stay in perpetual covenant with God was to keep and honor the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day. That would be our Saturday. Some have said the Sabbath was changed to Sunday. That is incorrect. The Sabbath today is still Saturday. New Testament believers have no command given to them that they have to keep a Sabbath or have to worship on the Sabbath. If somebody wants to do that, there's nothing wrong with that. And another place, Ezekiel 20, verse 12. 
Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And then jump down to verse 20. And keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So, answering the questions. Who was the covenant with? It was with God and Israel, right? We are not Israel. We are a Gentile church. Don't ever confuse that. Israel has a specific plan and purpose from God. Okay? The covenant had conditions, no question about it. And the sign of it was keeping Sabbaths. That was how that sign was there. But why did God make this covenant with Israel in the first place? What makes Israel special? Flip over to Deuteronomy 32. I want you to see this. This is stuff that is not typically taught. In fact, a lot of times it gets looked over. This is, if you want to give this a name, this would have a divine counsel theology behind it, okay? The divine counsel is that when God created in Eden, created everything, there's the counsel that involved Him, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The created angels, these, these beings that you talk, they talk about, that whether they be the watchers or the sons of God or however you want to say it. And then man, there's three parts to this counsel. And that God talks to both parts early on about what the plans are, what's going to happen and all of that. You see that very vividly in Daniel 7 as an example. Man screws up and separates himself from this. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting in verse 8, it says, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the place of His inheritance. So, we see Him separating the nations, right? And He takes for Himself a portion for Him. Now, all the nations belong to the Lord. We know that. But we see him separating these people. When did God divide the nations? You see it in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Because before then, God had told them to separate. They didn't do it. They came together, so God confuses their language. And then immediately after he separates them, in chapter 12, you see the call of Abraham happen, right? You see how these things piggyback upon one another? There is a, a, a thorough line that we can follow all the way through. God sets one nation apart from all the other nations. And that is why all of those weird laws that we talk about are there. Why it says, do not put tattoo marks on your body. Why it says, you can't eat pork or shellfish. Or why there's no mixed fabrics and all of that. Those are things that were given to God in response to what other pagan nations were doing in worship of their gods. It's specifically setting apart the nation of Israel. Some people will use the, the verse in Leviticus, I believe it's 19, about don't put tattoo marks on your body. That's saying, well, no, see, believers can't put tattoos. That's not what that says. The people were tattooing themselves as worship to their false god. God tells the nation of Israel, don't do that. Don't do anything to be like them. Don't eat like they do. And there's certain health reasons that go with some of that other stuff. Or the mixed fabrics. It all had to do with worship of false gods. And they were one nation set apart, a holy nation, a nation of priests that were to point the rest of the nations to God. They, that the people would see this nation as blessed by the one true God and would want to be a part of it. That was the idea. Obviously, Israel didn't do so great. But he separated them out as his portion. You guys following me on that? That is the significance of it. So you see in this, this covenant made here that this is God and the nation of Israel. Because from this point on, from Genesis 12 all the way through, is about Israel. 
It's all about Israel. It's about how the Messiah came through Israel. Okay? But let's talk about the Davidic covenant real quick. And this won't take very long, I promise. We've talked about it a little bit already, or just kind of addressed it um, somewhat in passing about some of the promises that Jesus fulfilled. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where you see this Davidic covenant come into play. It says in verse 1, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Again, pick up on that. The word of the Lord. We've talked about that before. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent of my dwelling. This is referring to the tabernacle, and we'll get into that when we talk about the book of Exodus in more detail. Verse 7, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I command to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, and you should be prince over my people Israel. It's talking about when he was a young man, he was a shepherd, and God called him out and anointed him to be king. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now he's talking about David, and he's talking about the nation or the land. And that is going to be here. And eventually it's going to be peaceful. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And you shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be separated forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So he lays out six things specifically here. First, God promises David, just like he did Abraham, that he will make his name great. I think I've got these. Do I have these up here? Yes, I do. (laughs) Look at me on top of stuff. Okay, he promises David, just like it was Abraham, that he would make his name great. You see that in verse 9. He says that David will have a son who will succeed him as king, and God will establish his kingdom. You see that in verse 12. This son will build the temple. This is referring to Solomon. In verse 13, and it says, uh, the fourth one, this kingdom, referring to the throne of the Davidic line, that it will continue forever. God will center this dynasty in the promised land and provide his people rest and peace. And you see this in verse 10. And then in in the sixth one, God's love will remain on this house forever, even when it sins. That's verse 15. It's significant. These are a lot of promises that God made. Now, again, you don't see explicitly say that this is a covenant between God and David, right? It doesn't say that specifically. But if you look at 2 Samuel 23, 
In verse 5, it says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. Again, this is spelling out a covenant. That this was David talking. A covenant that God made with him, just like when you see with the, the Adamic covenant, Hosea 6-7 is where it really says specifically that this is a covenant. But who is this covenant between? It's between God and, and specifically David. It's for the nation of Israel, but specifically David. It's a promise. What are the conditions of it? There really are none. God says, you will have, your name will be great, and it is, and your kingdom, your throne will be forever. And it's ultimately pointing to Jesus who will sit on that throne. But there are a little bit of conditions in the fact that because of sin, that his descendants won't share in the blessings that David had, but the promise in and of itself is that, that that kingdom will reign forever. And so, and a lot of it has to do with the worship of other gods, that's why they don't do that. But this is an unconditional covenant. It's because it's simply made by God's promise to David. It's not saying, David, if you will do this, then I will do that. That's what you see in the Mosaic covenant, and we didn't have time to go through all that. But if you will do this, I will do that. But it doesn't say that. It says, I'm going to on your behalf is basically what it's saying. Is there a sign of this covenant? Not really, because one, it's not necessarily needed when it is a promise of God to his people. You don't have to have a sign. The sign covenants were more so done in the fact that it's a reminder on both parties. Don't forget this. This is important. And so we've only looked at these things briefly. And there is so much more to it. And I really, I mean this. I would encourage you to go back and study these things out because there's so much more to it. But ultimately, all of these covenants serve one single purpose. That is to usher in the Messiah, who is Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at next week. We're going to look at this new covenant. And and, and we're going to go through this in detail. But what you're going to see next week is how Jesus fulfilled every one of of these previous covenants. All the promises are found in Jesus. Things that we say that, that with our, our church lingo, you know, all the promises God are yes and amen. Well, why are they yes and amen? They're through Jesus. This new covenant, when he talks about the blood of the covenant, when we take communion, we're going to take communion next week. But I mean, when you look at all of that, what does that signify? Why is that important and all of that? It's going to give you an appreciation of this new covenant that you and I enjoy and didn't have to work for. Amen? Let's pray.